Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Del Fiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. Today, I'm joined by ILSR's Chris Mitchell, as well as David Dayan, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect and the author of the new book called Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me on. Appreciate what you guys do. And uh, Christopher, you personally and ILSR more generally were were incredibly helpful to me uh, in the reporting of this book. So uh, thanks for all you do. Thank you. And uh, it was nice to see my name in print. Um, I, I, I thought I had one quote. I was excited to see I showed up more than once. So that was pretty wonderful. <laughs> I aim to please. I should also say that I really appreciate your work in general, but this in particular uh, has garnered you praise from the highest of sources from my point of view. And that's two days ago, Marissa Baradaran said that uh, she just finished her book and she said, holy cow, it's good. First off, it's funny. Also, it made me super angry. And I don't think there's higher praise than that. <laughs> yes, it's the, the combination of someone making someone laugh and want to throw something is, is usually what I go for. So uh, <laughs> that worked out. Yes, I mean, I, I have to say, like, I, I feel like the, the, the storytelling of people's backgrounds and, and just getting a sense of who these people are, how they've been harmed, is a, it's really good to have it last in, uh, um, in, the, in our brains after we've finished your book and probably read three other books. We'll still remember some of those characters. Yeah, I mean, that was the whole point. I mean, the idea was now is starting to be kind of a literature around anti-monopoly stories about the history stories about just the extreme amount of concentration within the economy generally. But what I felt was missing was that personal touch that, that, you know, actually talking to people about the effect of monopoly on their daily life. And so that's what I set out to do back when you could actually travel uh, in in the world. uh, (laughs) I went around and, and talked to people about how they were living through monopoly. And maybe people didn't sort of put that name on it, But when we talked about it and talked about the effects on their life from these large sort of, in some cases, unseen forces, they understood it. I think that was sort of the best way to attack this problem and add value to it was to uh, really get at the, the human element. As you did that and talked to people, was there anything that surprised you? I mean, I think a lot of people might have, you know, an idea of certain sectors that are more monopolized, but I'm curious if there was anything that on its surface, maybe we don't think of as a monopoly, but as you worked on this book, you found that, you know, there's stuff going on behind the scenes or supply chains. I mean, this might not completely answer the question, but what did surprise me was how bipartisan the universe of people affected by this was and how much they they knew that. Uh, I talked to someone who her thing was she rented a house that was owned by a private equity landlord and she had this terrible experience and found out that lots and lots of people are having this terrible experience. And she's a huge Trump supporter. The unit that she bought was owned by Invitation Homes, which is a division of Blackstone. Blackstone, of course, uh, the CEO is Stephen Schwartzman, who's a major confidant of Donald Trump. And so she's been writing these letters to Trump and Schwartzman on a daily basis. 
Another person I talked to, actually, for this, the, the chapter that you're quoted in, Chris, is this woman, Carolyn Horowitz, who, after I went through this whole thing about how she lives in a rural area and she can't get broadband, she's had this terrible experience, she tells me, oh, I'm a libertarian. And uh, she talks to me about how Adam Smith knew that, that monopolies were a problem in his treatise in you know, the, the, the 18th century. So that did surprise me that this, this, this does not cut left or right. This, this is something that affects all of us. You know, people aren't necessarily, I mean, outside of people who are professional Democrats or Republicans, whatever, people who just sort of live through this, their, their partisan identification does not blind them to the problem of monopoly. You know, when you started that answer, I thought you were going to go in the different direction. You talked about how people that are harmed by monopoly are across the spectrum. I thought you might be talking about uh, former Secretary Vilsack and the number of Obama alums and and others on the on the side that I think many of us would think of has been more anti-monopoly, um, or at least more anti-large corporations, the Democrats, and how many of them have been getting big paychecks and big paydays by working for big monopolies. Yeah, I wish that surprised me. But, but, <laughs> That's a good point. That's a different question. <laughs> It's absolutely true that we have had a bipartisan walk off the field in terms of monopoly over the last 40 years. It may have started in the Republican Party and, you know, the Reagan administration guidelines for merger policy. But certainly through the Clinton years and the Obama years, there has been either an unwillingness or an active sort of reversal of what was a historical association with monopoly. I believe from 1988 to 2016, monopoly did not appear in the Democratic platform. It returned in 2016 in many ways because of the efforts of your organization and others like it that have really put this on the map and made this a a priority. But for many years, Democrats were completely content to not enforce antitrust law to help with the consolidation of industries, as we read about in the book, uh, in the defense sector, in telecom, in, in, in agriculture. And so the Obama administration allowed the largest mergers in the airline industry up to that point in history. They allowed the merger of Live Nation and Ticketmaster, maybe because chief of staff under Obama, Rahm Emanuel, his brother was on the board of Live Nation at the time, and just on and on. And, and there are a lot of stories like that. You mentioned Bill Sack as well, who now works for the dairy industry. A uh, lot of stories about that throughout the book. This is a bipartisan problem, and maybe it'll need a bipartisan solution. Well, much like calories don't count when you're on vacation, I think if you know someone who's involved in the monopoly industry, then it's okay to let them merge. <laughs> yes. That must be the rule. Uh, and, and since everybody knows somebody, then uh, that's, that's been how the last 40 years have transpired. Yeah. Could we um, dig into that a little bit more? Uh, just the pervasive influence of monopoly power in the political system on all sides. Uh, how does that contributing to major inequities like low wages, bad working conditions, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's actually pretty powerfully uh, put across in the, the chapter on telecom and, and community broadband. So this is a long fight that I'm sure, uh, Chris, you know about, uh, uh, you can tell it more than better than I can, but 
you know, I traveled to Chattanooga, Tennessee, which has the largest and, and fastest community broadband network uh, in, in the United States and maybe the world. It's a 10 gig fiber to the home network that's put through the utility, which is a public utility, a t- Tennessee Valley Authority utility system. It's brought entrepreneurship back to Chattanooga. It assisted in education and telehealth which was, you know, now with the pandemic, we hear about this a lot, but this was even well before then. It's really been a boon to the community. And if you go three minutes outside of Chattanooga, you're back to dial up. And the reason for that, uh, it's not because those communities outside Chattanooga don't want high-speed broadband. It's because in the state of Tennessee, AT&T and Comcast got their legislators to pass a law that said that you can't deliver broadband service outside the service area if you're a public utility. And so you have this unbelievable dichotomy where you have this super fast broadband inside Chattanooga and then outside you have kids going every night to Starbucks parking lots to try to catch the Wi-Fi so they can do their homework. And that is a pure political play. I mean, that, that is a pure conversion of economic power from the very concentrated telecom industry into political power. And it's not limited to Tennessee, of course. We have, we have dozens of states that have these limitations on community Wi-Fi and community broadband. Uh, and even at the federal level, with the judiciary blocking the ability for cities like Chattanooga to move beyond their service area, and the FCC deciding not to contest that above the federal district court level, I believe. That was, a, I think, a good example of it. And you see it kind of throughout. Uh, this is why mergers don't get contested. This is why sometimes you see uh, the Justice Department step in on the side of the monopolist in cases uh, where they stepped in for Uber and Apple when cities and other entities were trying to put limits on them. And so this is just sort of a, a something we see repeated over and over again. It has profound effects, not just on the quality of the products and services that we get. In the airline chapter, I talk about how this decade-long fight over legroom in planes has led to a situation where we're just squeezed like sardines. And what I talk about in the book is all of the ways in which monopolies are quite harmful beyond prices. I mean, we, we have this sort of directive set up by Robert Bork and and people at the University of Chicago that the only thing that's important when you're looking at mergers is price. If you can get things cheaper from a merged company, then then whatever else they do, it doesn't matter. That's okay. But you know, we're more than our Amazon Prime accounts, right? We're 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 workers, we're citizens, we're entrepreneurs, we're small business owners. And that all matters as much, if not more, than just whether or not a merger makes a company more efficient. So I really try to shy away from sort of the price effects and look at all of these other ways in which monopolies have profound influence on society and really control uh, lots of elements of our daily lives. Yeah, one of those things is something that I think we're starting to hear more about, but we haven't heard enough about yet, and that's around farm tech. And in particular, I think when we think about and you cover this well, how the, the monopolies on the farm hurt the people who own farms. It makes it harder for families to own farms. I mean, there's all kinds of things there. But nestled in there, there's this issue of who knows what's happening 
on all of the fields of America. And it's this sort of fascinating thing. And I've heard other people talk about this in terms of, you know, in the future, will John Deere make more money making and selling tractors and repairing them? Or will it make more money gambling? Because it knows more about what the different futures will be for these fields than anyone else, because they're the only ones with access to that information. Well, I thank you for picking that out, because there are so many parts of this book that I thought, well, that could be the whole book. You know, that little area could be the entire book, actually. But in my book, it's like two paragraphs. And, and that's one example. Yeah, a lot of the information that used to be collected in things like the Farmer's Almanac and in, in various governmental studies and charts that would help farmers decide when to plant and what kind of seeds might be best for this particular season or whatnot. All of that has become sort of proprietary and funneled up to these monopolist agricultural interests, uh, John Deere, you know, in particular. And all of that data through smart tractors and, and, and all of these different things can be monetized, as you mentioned. And it, it can be incredibly useful for a company like John Deere. Uh, part of this plays into why it's so hard if you're a farmer to actually repair your own equipment. John Deere keeps proprietary information on its software and even goes to the extent that saying that when John Deere sells a farmer a tractor, it's only selling them the license to operate the vehicle. They're not that it's actually selling them the tractor itself. There's a very strong movement called right to repair that says, look, if I bought this tractor and it breaks, I have to be able to fix it. I can't go to the manufacturer every time my, my, my tractor breaks down or any other part of equipment that I use. That's just a way to gouge me and get, and get more money out of me. But secondarily, it's also a way to, to keep that data in the hands of a John Deere. So there's kind of a dual purpose to it. And we don't see this just in farming, right? I mean, Apple has proprietary systems upon their cell phones, for example. You can't crack them. And there's right to repair in all sorts of things. The military, I mean, that's one of the uh, more interesting areas in which military contractors have proprietary locks on their equipment that they sell to military. And, and when troops are on the battlefield, they can't repair the equipment in theater they have to send it back or, or there's another case of when, you know, now all of our used military equipment goes to local police departments through a program called 1033. So these local police departments get this thing and they can't fix it. They have to send it back and it costs them more money than if they never had anything to do with this uh, <laughs> uh, ridiculous piece of hardware that they probably shouldn't use on American streets anyway. Yeah, that's just an example of how pervasive this is, that, that this is not just about, oh, I can only buy seeds from one person and so that that person can charge me more money or I can only buy a tractor from one one company. It's there. There's all this other pervasive elements in which and it really comes down to control. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like sort of a, a the classic heads I win, tails you lose in that um, John Deere is going to get that information. Like the system works well for them, but the farmer the tractor breaks down when he's planting or she's planting and they will have to wait a week. Oh, no big deal. I'm sure. Right. Like, <laughs> let's get the seeds in next week or next month after the tractor is repaired. It's just, it's, it's a reminder of who wins and who loses, but go ahead, Jess. I think it's your turn. 
Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, this is a great time for, you know, all our listeners who have gotten to a level of anger that they need to throw something. We can take that break now. (laughs) You really probably shouldn't throw anything right now, but I do want to take a moment to thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Local Power. If you enjoy listening to the show, we hope you'll consider making a donation to the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Your support makes it possible for us to have great guests like David on the show, and it helps us continue our work pushing back against concentrated corporate power. If you want to join us in returning power to local communities, please go to ilsr.org slash donate. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. So we're talking to David Dayan about his book, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And you touched on this a little earlier, David, but I'm curious what actually happens after a merger takes place. I mean, do we actually get low prices? Do we? Do they become more efficient? Yeah, we don't. Uh, so <laughs> thing that's so interesting is that Robert Bork's kind of put together this this very insular kind of theory about monopoly, where he said that, well, as long as companies become more efficient, then we should allow mergers to get through. Oh, and also corollary, as long as companies get bigger, they become more efficient. So you, it's an impenetrable argument, but there have been scholars that have started to look at this. If I could just interrupt you for one second before you talk about the scholars, I think it, it's the kind of thinking that thinks, well, if only we could combine the wonderful forces of Comcast and Charter Spectrum, then they would finally have good customer service. That's what's been lacking. They just need more, more power. Yeah, that's the problem. So the most prominent scholar that's looked at this is a guy named John Quoka. And he's out of Northeastern University, and he did a retrospective study because I guess the government couldn't do it on their own. So they had to have some guy from Northeastern do it. But he did this study. He looked at 46 mergers. He checked, you know, whether prices did indeed go down. And what he saw is that 38 of the 46 mergers showed increases in prices on an average of about 7%. So even on Bork's own terms, even on the law and economics movement's own terms, this doesn't work. And of course, the bigger issue to me is that the law and economics movement leaves out this whole other set of problems that enter into the the picture when you're dealing with monopoly. You can kind of get any economist to massage the numbers in a way that makes it look like everybody got a deal when two companies merged. But what you can't do is is talk about product quality and inequality and wages and, you know, the, the, the extreme political power that these these companies enjoy. You know, if we, we really want to talk about consumer welfare or maybe we should call it citizen welfare. You can't just look at price. And I think Quoka's work is incredible because it, it punctures just the heart of the argument. But also, I think you have to go further. Absolutely agree. And if you look at the AT&T T-Mobile merger, I think we'll be seeing evidence of that. We've seen AT&T in the Time Warner merger. They they just broke all of their promises immediately and, and raised prices. I feel like once again, though, getting back to this who's winning and who's losing, like there have been winners. And when we talk about these mergers, I feel like a lot of us that are 
critical of them. We'll often talk about the board members, the corporate boards, the you know consumers. We don't really talk about something that you do mention, which is like all of these M&A lawyers. Like there's been this 40-year movement, this whole industry that's grown up to encourage these mergers, not because mergers are good, not because, you know, just because they can make money encouraging mergers. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks for bringing up that chapter. It's it's one of my favorites. And the germ of that chapter was I was reading a story in the New York Times about a big merger between two giant beer conglomerates. Uh, this is AB InBev and SAB Miller. And what's funny about that is that both of those are abbreviations because they were merged from other <laughs> <laughs> from other beer distributors. So this ended up creating a, a company which is called AB InBev, Anheuser-Busch and InBev, a Belgian company, which sells about 30% of the world's beer. It's just kind of an average article about, you know, this happened. Here's what the issues surrounding the merger are. Here's what the market share will be. And then there's this paragraph at the end that talks about who advised on the merger. And it's 19 different entities that advised <laughs> on the merger. 11 banks and eight law firms advised the two companies who are involved in it. And that gives you an indication of how lucrative this is, that there are sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars on the line for banks and law firms in just advising companies on the ins and outs of merger policy. There's even a chart that is put together by the industry. They call it the league tables. And the league tables show which banks have made the most deals in which particular year. And human nature being what it is, those banks want to get to the top of the league tables, right? Not just because it's money, but it's also prestige and reputation. And so you've now built in this incentive system to merge because one thing that's important to realize is that the money doesn't come through and pay off unless the merger goes through. So there's an incentive there, obviously. And no banker is going to be hired on retainer by a big company as an M&A lawyer, a mergers and acquisitions banker, I should say, and tell the company, no, you definitely shouldn't merge. Because there would be no reason to do that. Your fee is based on getting more mergers. And often what you're doing is financing the merger through the financing arm of the bank. So it's it's a way to, to uh, you know, add to a different business line, not just the M&A fees, but also the financing fees. And so, yes, there's this, this kind of pervasive relationship. It's also done through the way the merger contracts are set up that usually reward the top executives at these companies with golden parachutes. Golden parachutes sort of as an idea, the idea of buying off an executive that really came out of merger policy in the 1980s. It was a way to sort of buy off the executive who was going out the door. This continues in most mergers that you see an executive get a huge payout. The wheels are really greased on Wall Street for more mergers to happen, whether or not they're good ideas for the population or even for these companies is kind of besides the point. 
I think that's a really important point because when we look at the the results and a lot of times we're focused on buying into the narrative that it would be good for them to merge. And like like you mentioned with John Quoka, you're not actually the first to bring up his studies on this podcast because I think it's important to understand that it's sort of it's wrong outside the frame and it can be wrong inside the frame too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, the league tables might as well just be a list of the biggest banks in America because the biggest banks end up being the biggest M&A banks because M&A is a large profit center within banking more generally. And those banks gain a certain level of power over the system by knowing all the ins and outs of, of merger policy and being able to dictate terms to unsuspecting companies. So I, I do a long section about a merger between two food chains, uh, distributor chains, that Goldman Sachs was both the lead advisor on and the lead financier on. And they used that power to sort of manipulate the merging companies into giving them a bunch more money, essentially. So this is kind of a pervasive thing, too, where it's it's not just that they're driving the system toward more monopoly, but they're also taking large cuts out in the process. And eventually that that funnels down to that company needing to make up that money on the backs of their workers or their customers or their suppliers. So it seems like, well, I don't want to say we've reached a peak because I'm sure we haven't, unfortunately, but we've reached, you know, extreme levels of corporate consolidation. Do you feel like there's also new momentum behind the anti-monopoly movement? Do you feel like anything's changed with the pandemic? I mean, I'm sure your book was finalized before that became a part of our lives. But uh, yeah, your thoughts on, on what's happening right now? I think there's momentum in both directions. There's no question that the pandemic has created a, a, a situation that will accelerate this monopoly problem. So you have small businesses that simply don't have the reserves that larger businesses do. The program that was put forward to help them, PPP, was time limited we're well past the eight weeks of salary that small businesses were able to acquire. And we're already seeing a lot of small businesses fall out. The other thing is at the mid-sized level, we're seeing businesses weaken and become ripe takeover targets at a discount. So there's no question that we're going to see a lot more consolidation. In addition, the dynamics of the pandemic in terms of changing people's work patterns, changing retail patterns, all funnels up to companies that's already were entrenched in that market. People like Amazon, for example, which I, I think ILSR has a passing familiarity with. Um, <laughs> so yes, we're absolutely going to see a tremendous acceleration of this trend of monopoly in the near term. In the longer term, we are seeing more momentum to call these things out, as I and, and not just in books. There's more than just sort of an academic level of this that it's really sort of penetrating uh, the political system. And 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 my hope is that there's sort of a movement building around these issues. So the House Antitrust Subcommittee has put forward the the largest investigation on monopoly power in decades culminating in a hearing with Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg and Sundar Pichai of Google and Tim Cook of Apple. The first time that uh, Bezos has ever testified and certainly the largest collection of wealth ever in one hearing. So there, there is movement there. 
what I tried to do with this book is provide a way for people to get into it, to do this sort of travel log of monopoly and let people understand that the power dynamics and the power relationships within American society are very much driven by this corporate power and that the only way that we've ever arrested this before and the only way that we're going to do it now is through a social movement. You know, in the last chapter, I talk about the experience of Israel, which we don't really think about in terms of policy outside of Palestinian policy in the United States, but which had this terrible monopoly problem. And there was sort of a, much like us, an academic and, and journalistic movement to really identify it and call it out. And when the time came, when there were large protests on the streets in Israel in 2011, 2012, they became tied up with calling out the tycoons who had these giant interlocking firms that, you know, 60 different businesses fell under the hands of one particular tycoon. And, and this movement, the social movement on the streets, which was, I think, at its peak, about half a million people in a country of only about 11 million. So a, a major movement led to change, even in a right-wing Benjamin Netanyahu government, there was a concentration law that passed. There were changes to ownership within telecom such that cell phone charges went down by 90%. A lot of these tycoons went to jail for various crimes that they had committed in the course of building their empires. So I put that forward as sort of an object lesson that, yes, if we build a collective voice at the local level and, and you know, ILSR has done that. The thing you guys just put out about, you know, state and local resources for what they can do to fight monopolies, I thought was terrific. And I, I mention a lot of that stuff within the book, actually. You know, if you keep building that and building that and get people to understand that this is a major, major challenge, if not the main challenge that unlocks every other challenge that we face in America, then we can move towards some change. Yeah, I would like to echo that, just the importance of of the idea of, of that movement building, no matter who's in power. We've recognized that you, we can be tough on Democrats while also strongly hoping that uh, Democrats do better in the next election for many of us. <laughs> but at the same time, dreading that um, if it's majority leader Chuck Schumer, that you know we're going to need a, a mighty movement. And no matter what, we need a mighty movement. So um, I feel like sometimes those things are, are put in tension with each other when in fact we need to make sure we, we're trying to vote in people that might be better, but also that we're building a movement no matter who's in power with a reminder that, that Nixon was forced to create the EPA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, politicians like to get out in front of a parade and, and say that they were leading it all along. And, and that's the goal. So that it obviously matters who our elected leaders are, but what you want to do is put them in a position where their success is defined by whether they take the cues from a large social movement underneath them. And, and I think Biden has shown a, a receptivity to that to a certain extent. There is certainly anti-monopoly talk within the platform. There was more anti-monopoly discussion in the 2020 primary on the Democratic side than I've seen at any time in, in several decades, maybe since 1912, when monopoly was a major factor in the election where we're going to go with Wilson or a more regulated monopoly like like Roosevelt or a laissez-faire kind of style like Taft. 
So I'm hopeful that more people are understanding sort of the forces that are shaping their lives. And it really is their lives. It's not just their economic lives. It's it's their lives. And I tell this story in the book about this couple who met. They're both third-party sellers on Amazon. They met at a convention for third-party sellers. They got to know each other. They started dating. And then they decided to move in together. And the day after they did, their accounts were suspended. Their third-party <laughs> seller accounts on Amazon. And, and they, they tried to find out why. And they were told that, well, you now have two accounts at the same IP address, and that's against the rules, the Amazon rules. So they, they had to get permission <laughs> from Amazon to live together. And, and, and that's an example of this extreme power that these large corporations hold over our lives, that, that we're all sort of in Amazon's private government or Facebook's private government or or United Airlines private government where they say, OK, you have a ticket, but we're going to take you off the plane now or, you know, whoever else's T-Mobile or, 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 or Comcast or AT&T. So if people have that understanding that 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 there's a different way to do this, that we could regulate through a democratic process rather than having regulation in the corporate boardroom for corporate interests without the public interest being being in the equation whatsoever. Building that awareness is definitely what I wanted to do with this book. And I think there are other books already here and coming out that continue to build that awareness and build that movement towards, you know, an anti-corporate power movement. And as a, as a reminder, I think the way you do it in terms of telling the stories is, is powerful. One of the stories that you tell, I think, gets to what might be our last question, which is this issue of, of what actually what you talked about with the, the election in 1912, which is to regulate or to break up. And when I look at your book, in many ways, it seems like a failure of regular. Like I don't, I don't have a reason why I put more faith into the regulators. One of the examples is the um, you talked about the legs, the seat uh, amount of room you have on a plane for your legs, and talking about how the regulator is supposed to ensure that you can exit, you can empty a plane in what ninety seconds, I think, or something like that. Like in the event of a of an adverse situation, <laughs> and and yet no one's actually bothered to check to see if you could do it, except for like I think one of the the protagonists of your book found a video eventually in which it was clearly staged with like athletes piling out of this plane in enough time. <laughs> he said he didn't say they were athletes, but he said they were quite physically fit. I think it's professional what he, plane exiters. You know, so the FAA unveiled these videos uh, because I guess they have to do tests that there is a a rule that you have to be able to evacuate a plane in 90 seconds in order to be approved for whatever seat pitch or uh, leg room that you have on your plane. And so you can see these videos. They're up uh, there. They're, you know, you can go to my index and, and, and check it out. And everyone seemed pretty, it didn't look like any universe of people I've ever seen on a plane before. I, I, I didn't see a lot of I didn't see people with dolls rather than infants, first of all. Right. It definitely wasn't a plane into or out of Orlando, which is filled with children. Right. There weren't a lot of children. There were, instead of infants, they were dolls. And everyone seemed to be in their 30s. Nobody looked very obese to me. It just didn't seem like a, a representative sample. And it was very regimented in a way that 
people in an emergency wouldn't be. Like everybody knew what they had to do, right? And they did it several times until they got it right. <laughs> You'll keep doing the video until you get off the plane in the right amount of time. And, and once they gave enough videos that, that made this work out, the FAA allowed this to go forward. So, I mean, that was a convoluted question I asked you, but when you look at things like that, does that just suggest that the we should err away from regulators? And and I mean, ILSR is much more in the break them up camp. And these aren't separate camps. I mean, there's overlap and things like that. But but I just, I've really lost faith in, in the ability of us to regulate our way out of this. Right. That's interesting. You know, I, I think there's a place for a number of strategies. I think there has to be because it's such a big problem to bring these monopolists down to size. So yes, there's merger policy, but that comes with its own issues. You know, the, the, if, you, if you think the regulators, you shouldn't have faith in them, check out the judges. We should definitely look at merger retrospectives and potentially break, breaking up companies who exhibit anti-competitive behavior. I think there's a role for regulation in, in the case of the airlines, maybe bringing back a form of the Civil Aeronautics Board. There's a role for public options to create competition the market won't create, a public bank, a public credit registry for credit reporting bureaus, or any number of things. I think these things can play together and they can move on all fronts and work in tandem in some places. Sometimes when we think about antitrust policy, it's only thought of in terms of antitrust cases, lawsuits that you file at the Federal Trade Commission or at the Justice Department, I think we have to think more about a broad anti-monopoly regime. And of course, that also does not just implicate the federal level, but like the great work that you guys have done at the state level. So, you know, North Dakota has a rule against chain pharmacies. And so all of North Dakota has independent pharmacists. And, and since they're in many rural areas, the last line of defense against a kind of a crucial part of the health system Having an independent pharmacist that knows everybody in the community that, uh, you know, is, 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 is willing to be more than just a dispenser of pharmaceuticals uh, is very important. And so uh, that's one example. Zoning laws that block food deserts or block dollar stores like we've seen in Tulsa, Oklahoma and other parts of the country are another aspect of that. And, you know, I mean, I, I think that there are communities all over America that can take from these, not just, you know, it's it's not just blue cities on the coast. I mean, you're talking about North Dakota and Oklahoma, right? So I think we need to move on all fronts because certainly big businesses. I think that's a great rundown of different options. And um, I just want to throw in one additional one that I'm, I'm passionate about, and that's government really making sure that monopolies can't control that information. And that's but ideally by making it available to everyone for free, because that was going to make the economy more efficient. And so government should be collecting information and making it available every way that it can, making sure it doesn't just fall into the hands of a, of a few people. Right. I mean, just think about right now, the last two major crises that we've had, one was a crisis in foreclosures where the government did not collect any data on exactly how many people were being foreclosed upon. All of that data comes from the National Association of Realtors and, and private studies. And then this current pandemic, where the major set of data comes from either Johns Hopkins University or the COVID-19 tracking project, which is a journalistic project out of the Atlantic. The government does not collect at a federal level in an organized way 
the data on hospitalizations and testing and cases. CDC does some of this stuff, but it's not seen as the gold standard. And so reinvigorating public data is a major part of this. I absolutely agree. It's just evident in the last two sort of major breakdowns and failures of the country that we didn't have the data to understand, track, and try to fix these major problems. So uh, that's a very good point. So we've run over. And one thing we used to do is do recommendations, but I'll just mention that there's another book, if people really enjoy this, that they could read called Chain of Title, <laughs> which deals with that foreclosure crisis, your previous book. Uh, and then the other thing is, is that the state and local policy guide that, that you referenced is available on ILSR.org. It's a great resource that tracks a lot of these local um, and state policies that people can introduce and uh, more information around them. That's great. Let me just also say, just to be generous, there are more books on this issue that are already out or are coming out very soon. Zephyr Teachout has a book called Break Em Up. Barry Lynn of the Open Markets Institute has a book called Liberty for All Masters, which is coming in the fall. Matt Stoller's Goliath goes into the history of this. Tim Wu's The Curse of Bigness. There are a couple books about the tech industry by Franklin Four, World Without Mind, and a book by Jonathan Taplin called Move Fast and Break Things. There really is a, a full bookshelf now on, on this anti-monopoly situation. I'm happy to see it, and I, I hope that it will spur more discussion of this and, and give it a bigger role in our policy debates. Well, thank you for joining us today, David. This has been great. We'll definitely link to a lot of those resources as well as your new book in the show notes for this episode. And encourage everyone to check it out, because if you listen to this podcast, I'm sure it's content you'd be interested in. All right. Thank you very much. And thanks for all you do. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to what we discussed today by going to ILSR.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ILSR.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. Finally, you can help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. You can help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by Zach Fried and me, Jess Delfiaco. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you'll join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power. Building Local Power.